0: seem to bend over backwards, especially in a case like this, to want to preserve a conviction at the cost of finding the actual truth.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Miami Law Explainer, a new podcast from the University of Miami School of Law. At the Explainer, we take a deeper dive into the news of the day, unpacking Supreme Court cases and decisions, sussing out hot political and social issues, and discussing legal matters that are just too interesting to ignore. I'm Annette Ugez. Today, we're with Craig Trocino, director of Miami Law's Innocence Clinic. Craig has extensive experience in criminal appeals and post-conviction litigation, including death penalty cases. Good afternoon, Craig. Good afternoon. Earlier this week, the Supreme Court refused to hear the case of Brandon Dassey, one of the subjects of the Netflix true crime series, Making a Murderer. To remind our listeners, Brandon is serving a life sentence for murder, sexual assault, and mutilation of a corpse. First, Craig, tell us a little bit about the facts of the case.
0: Well, the facts of this case revolve around uh, Brendan's uncle, a gentleman named Stephen Avery. Um, and there was a body found in the family uh, business, which is a junkyard. Uh, uh, the police focused on uh, Mr. Avery and then uh, trying to get more evidence against Mr. Avery, they focused on a Mr. Dassey, who was a 16-year-old, a developmentally disabled uh, high school student at the time.
1: So, how has the case proceeded up to the Supreme Court?
0: Well, it first started uh, after the conviction became final. Then there was a a proceeding in state court uh, which was denied and the lawyers went into federal court on what's called a petition for habeas corpus. Um, The federal district court judge agreed with Dassey's lawyers and granted him relief, meaning that he ordered him a new trial. Uh, That got appealed to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, a panel of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with the district court and said, yes, he should get a new trial. And then they did uh, a fairly um, nuanced thing called a rehearing on banc, which meant the entire panel of the, the Seventh Circuit. So all the judges sitting on the Seventh Circuit listened to this again and decided that the district court judge and the original panel of the Seventh, second, seventh Circuit got it wrong and denied Mr. Dassey relief. Then Mr. Dassey appealed on a petition for certiorari to the United States Supreme Court, which was recently denied.
1: So with the highest court rejecting his case, where does that leave Brandon and his legal team now?
0: It leaves them stuck in a very hard place. There's not much more they can do unless there is some new evidence that's found that would benefit or exonerate him. Anything new in in the Avery case that would tend to exonerate or tend to uh, exculpate Mr. Avery would also therefore tend to exculpate Mr. Dassey because the same set of facts that convicted Mr. Avery convicted Mr. Dassey as well So if the case falls apart against Avery it falls apart against Dassey too Doesn't matter that they weren't tried together
1: What does the court's decision tell us on the larger canvas?
0: Well, um, it tells us one that it's very, very difficult for a wrongfully convicted person to convince a court that they're actually innocent to get re- actually innocent to get relief. It also tells us the lengths at which courts will go to preserve convictions as opposed to finding out the actual truth in it. Um, we know that the American criminal justice system makes mistakes. It's been making mistakes for decades and decades. The National Registry of Exonerees has a pro- over 2,000 exonerations since 1989. There are over 350 DNA-only exonerations. We know it gets it wrong, but courts seem to bend over backwards, especially in a case like this, to want to preserve a conviction at the cost of finding the actual truth. You know, uh, Ralph Nader said, "Your best teacher is your last mistake." This mistake is a really darn good teacher, and we're not learning from it. When the uh, when the when the Circuit Court of Appeals uh, Reversed and said that Mr. Dassey wasn't entitled to relief. They make a lot of statements about factual statements about what happened in his uh, in interrogation. They say that the interrogation took place in a comfortable setting without any physical coercion or intimidation, without even any raised voices over a relatively short period of time. In fact, it was four different interrogations over 48 hours with a 16 year old developmentally disabled child surrounded by two adult police officers using techniques designed, psychologically designed to extract and informa- extract information from him. The court also says that it, one of the things with, with false confessions is the confessor says things that only the real killer would know, right? And the court takes on to that and says many of the most damaging details were provided by Brendan himself in open-ended questions. That, when you review the actual recording of the interrogation, is simply not true. For instance, one of the critical acts, facts here is that the, the victim was shot in the head with a gun. They needed Brendan to say that the victim was shot in the head with a gun. So the interrogation proceeds like this, Brendan, what did Stephen, your uncle do to her head? He cut her hair. Okay, Brendan, what did he do to her head? He punched her in the head. Okay, Brendan, what else did he do? He cut her throat. Okay, Brendan, what else did he do? I don't know. And then the officer actually says, and this is almost a direct quote, okay, I'm just going to come out and ask you, Brendan, who shot her in the head? And he said, Stephen did. Well, why didn't you tell me that before? I didn't think of it before. So the police are in a position of contaminating Brendan's knowledge of things that only the true killer would know and then turning around and saying, see, it's obviously a right confession because only the true killer would know that when really the police knew it too and they fed it to them. And that's just one example of the contamination in this case.
1: You mentioned that you showed the interrogation to your students. What do you hope they get out of seeing that?
0: I did, and I, and I do it in this module of my class every semester. Um, and I want them to see, because it's a good description of how invest, interrogation techniques are used. Um, And they're used very deliberately and they're used in a psychologically coercive way, especially when you have somebody who's malleable uh, like Brendan Dassey is. Um, He's got a, I believe his IQ was 70 or below uh, a 16-year-old boy who's completely fish out of water in this. And if you see the actual footage of it, you can see that in his face and you see the police officers over and over again. We know the truth, Brendan. You just need to tell us the truth. At one point, the officer says to him, look, I got a son your age, too. I'm not a cop right now. I'm a father. I want to walk over there and give you a hug. Right? That's the non-coercive environment that the Seventh Circuit said Brendan Dassey was in. I can't imagine anybody with a 70 IQ and developmentally disabled not finding some level of psychological coercion in their Was it a comfortable room? Sure, there was a couch. Were they nice to him? Sure, they weren't screaming at him. But that wasn't because they were nice people. That's all the psychological design by uh, training to extract the confession from this boy.
1: Why would a suspect answer questions untruthfully to his own demise?
0: That is the first question that anybody has when they find out that false confessions are a thing. They're not just a thing. In fact, they're the number two leading cause of wrongful convictions in the United States. Oh, probably, period. Number one is faulty eyewitness ID. Number two is false confession. So the question then becomes, why on God's green earth would somebody admit to committing a murder that would either line, line, land you in prison for the rest of your life or maybe even the uh, death penalty? Um, with Brendan's case, his uh, mental and emotional state cannot be overlooked. One, he's a child. Two, he's developmentally disabled. Three, he's a overly compliant person, especially when authority figures. So, if you have an overly compliant person with authority figures, they want to just they want to help and they want to ask the question. It's not unlike, um, you know, confronting a student who didn't write, quite read the assignment, and they're asking little questions to make you think they kind of read it, and then they would agree with you when you give them the answer. Sort of what happens with Brendan Dassey and somebody like him. Other people, there's myriad reasons why people would uh, confess to something they didn't do. The, the three main techniques, umbrella techniques, of this thing called the read technique, which is what all these officers are trained to do, is uh, isolation, confrontation, and minimization. So you take the person, you put them in a room. Uh room may have a couch, it may not, but you're isolated from anybody around. You're confronted. You did this. You killed this woman. We know you did it. Now you just need to tell us. Right. And then minimization, giving them a reason why, uh, sort of a moral justification for the crime. You're going to feel better, Brendan, when you come clean with this. We know your uncle did all this. You're a good kid. I know this isn't you, but we can't help you unless you help yourself. That sort of thing. And depending on the personality profile of the person, or whether there's substance abuse or that sort of thing going on, um, it becomes there's psychologically malleable people and uh, people who want to, you know, Be agreeable to authority figures will do that. Some people will, after periods of time, will have a cognitive dissonance and conclude that maybe I did do it, maybe I did blackout. So there's a lot of different reasons why one would do it. It seems as the most counterintuitive concept that I can personally think of um, and if I didn't know that it happens on a very regular basis, Especially with children, if you're under 18, the odds of a false confession are, are astronomical. Under 21, they're not as bad, but they're still high.
1: So, what remedy is there left for the wrongfully convicted?
0: Well, I, I think the, you know, the public at large and the courts as, as a main character need to understand that uh, just because there's not screaming and yelling and physical coercion doesn't mean that the psychological tactics used aren't as equally Um, abusive, right? Nobody's walking into court anymore with bruises about their head and neck for having a confession beaten out of them. But those bruises are, they they might exist, but they're internal because they got beaten up metaphorically through a psychological tactic that's designed not to find information, that's designed to extract the truth, and I'm using air quotes, uh, the truth of what the investigator knows. Like these investigators, We know what happened, Brendan. You need to tell us the truth. The only truth that satisfies them is the truth that they think they know. It's not a fact-finding investigation at this point, and it needs to be.
1: All right. Thanks so much for joining us, Craig.
0: It's been my pleasure.
1: And that's all for this edition of The Explainer. Let us know what and whom you'd like to hear from here at Miami Law on future episodes. I'm Annette Ugez, and we will be back with you soon with another episode featuring legal news you can sink your ears into.